Welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. I'm pleased today to introduce my friend James Campbell. James is the Managing Director of Botswana Diamonds, PLC. Botswana Diamond PLC is a diamond exploration and development company listed on the London Alternative Investment Market and the Botswana Stock Exchange. It has projects in Botswana, South Africa and Zimbabwe. James has spent over 30 years in the diamond industry in a variety of leadership roles. James holds a degree in mining and geology from the Royal School of Mines at Imperial College in London. James also has an MBA with distinction from Durham University. James, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's very nice to speak with you after what should certainly be at least a decade. Sheila, it's, it's lovely to chat to you again, and it's lovely to reconnect. It almost seems like the 10 years has flown by in a flash. I wanted you to help uh, the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast listeners appreciate the difference between artisanal mining and small-scale mining. Sheila, in my view, the key differentiator is in the level of organization. Uh, with artisanal mining, it tends to be very hand-to-mouth, it tends to be unmechanized, and it tends to be very disorganized, and especially insofar as uh, who does the work, the licensing requirements, and any form of, of compliance. So it, it almost can be viewed as being a, a semi-anarchic activity, whereas small-scale mining is fundamentally different. Uh, if I look at large-scale mining momentarily, before I go back to small-scale mining, large-scale mining, as you'll be very familiar in, in Botswana with uh, Debswana's operations at Joaneng, Letlakani, and Arapa, is, is highly sophisticated, highly organized, uh, compliant in, in, in every respect you, you, can, you can think of, uh, and transparent. Small-scale mining is the small version of that. You would, have you would have licensing, you would have processing and mining equipment, you would have uh, people who know what they're doing, uh, but it will be on a, a much smaller basis. If I could use maybe South Africa as a small analogy uh, on that, in that we have something called mining licenses, which are, are very common to Botswana and actually most of uh, Africa, most of the world, where there is large-scale mining. You need sophisticated EMPRs, uh, you need sophisticated governance requirements, you need sophisticated technical and financial studies behind it. In South Africa, what they have is something called a mining permit, which is over five hectares and two years, uh, and it's designed around small-scale mining, and so the compliance requirements uh, are smaller, particularly from an environmental uh, and a, a legislative perspective, as well as a technical perspective, but the safety requirements, the labor requirements, and all those other things are the same as, as large-scale mining. But what it does allow, it allows smaller-scale operators who don't necessarily have the sophistication of large-scale operators uh, to actually go and, and make a living and employ people and work deposits, which are marginal, which large-scale miners 
uh, would move away from. I hope that's a bit mm. of a kind of introduction, Sheila. Yes, it, it, a couple of things you said I'd like to follow up on. Uh, the first is that uh, both small scale and large scale are formalized and mechanized to a, a, a limited extent in terms of level of expenditure. But you also did say, uh, you made reference to marginal. Deposits are marginal because that's the, the profile of the geology. Uh, others may also be marginal because they, they've reached near the end of their life. And my experience is that it is in the near end of life that small scale and artisanal mining might sometimes conflict uh, in terms of gaining access to a deposit. Is this correct? Possibly, uh, possibly, Sheila. I, I think that uh, I, I like your analogy that you, you typically, if you have, let's assume a high margin deposit, uh, you would have maybe large scale mining to begin with. And as the margins drop, you would go to medium scale, go to small scale, and then perhaps to artisanal at the end of the day. But perhaps not. If we look at maybe countries uh, such as the DRC, Sierra Leone, uh, Guinea, and I'm obviously referring to the diamond industry because that's uh, what I'm familiar with, you have artisanal mining taking place on deposits which are quite rich, which could uh, utilize small or even medium scale mining. But the level of organization in that country, in those particular countries, and the level of investment appetite to go in and take over those deposits from a formalized perspective is somewhat different. So artisanals would typically only be able to mine where the, the geology, the resource is reasonably rich because the sophistication in their processing uh, environment is fairly minimal. So they would have to be able to recover diamonds in this case uh, using very elementary uh, technology. And therefore, the resource would have to actually be quite, uh, quite good, uh, quite, quite, uh, uh, with quite a high margin. Mm. So two things. First of all, have you found that because of this unfortunate association of the two or the assumptions that they are the same. Do you find that investors are reluctant to go and invest in those environments because the line of divide between artisanal mining and small scale is not quite clear? I think investors are unwilling to invest in those areas when it involves the, I'll put it bluntly, Sheila, the forced replacement of people. Now, if you look at some of the large artisanal diamond fields in Angola, the DRC uh, and Sierra Leone, because those are the three countries, to my knowledge, which actually have them. If you were to go and mine in a sufficiently large area and formalize mining in that area, that would require uh, the forced removal of people from that area. And I think many investors shy away from that particular uh, strategy even though it would not be the job of the mining company to move the people, but the job of the government to do that. Because you know, all the, the mining rights are originally held by the state, obviously, and it's the state who would grant the mining license over those areas. So it would be the state's job to actually move it. If, and, and then if, if, let's say if that was to happen, then you would actually have to have a 
very sophisticated policing and security to ensure that your small or medium scale mine was secure from the local population. If I use a, a, an, an uh, analogy here from my experience, if I look at the mining in around the Mbuji Mai area in the DRC, you've got some very large kimberlites uh, there, champagne glass kimberlites. And the largest ones are in Mbuji Mai area. They are called massifs one to three. And you've got a massive settlement on your doorstep. So it's incredibly difficult, even if those deposits were rich for a an external investor who is obviously very concerned around financial return, compliance, security, all those kind of things, which are vital to actually go and invest in that area because it is so difficult to secure that area because you have over a million people, uh, many of which are in, in dire poverty, sitting on your doorstep. And what you might then happen is are the tragedies which happened in, in Sierra Leone a number of years uh, ago where the the police or the mercenaries, or call it what you will, of the people operating the Koidu diamond mines at that time, actually then uh, shot some of the local population. Now, I'm not going to judge whether this is right or wrong or, or anything like this. It's far beyond me. But they had to take the law into their own hands. And external mm. investors, in my view, do not want that to happen. They want to have... Um, uh, the mind to operate in a, in a peaceful and, and a compliant manner with a very low risk around this kind uh, of uh, action or, or this kind of uh, point. So uh, you, you talked of a kimberlite and a champagne class. Of course, you and I know that a kimberlite is, is, is the rock that bears diamonds and that it is typically shaped like a glass studying wide at the top and narrowing like a carrot. So I, I just thought I'd, I'd get the listeners to appreciate the reference there. But the optics of what you're describing, in terms of the potential conflict that may arise if governments don't properly adjudicate, is quite frightening uh, because, of course, if the governments don't properly separate artisanal mining rights, from small-scale mining rights. Isn't this where the spanner in the works is? That it is a, a gap in the legal frameworks that do not adequately distinguish and provide rights and then enforce the, the rights and obligations of either. Isn't that what the problem is, James? Perhaps, Sheila, but I would venture uh, that before one looks at uh, differentiating between small-scale rights and artisanal rights, you actually need to differentiate between uh, large-scale rights, uh, large-scale mining rights, and, and small-scale mining rights. And in, in, in my research, when, when I looked at this, I think South Africa is one of the only countries in the world where you have the mining permit, which I referred to earlier, uh, which is around small-scale rights and the mining licenses. So if you were to transplant that kind of legislation into other countries, then at least you're beginning to deal uh, with small scale mining permits. And, and just to kind of repeat what I said, that this is around a five hectare piece of ground. So it's a very small piece of ground. It's for two years renewable uh, for another year, and I think a second year. 
and you can only have one at a time. The, the financial and the technical and the commercial requirements for it are much smaller, but obviously you still have to adhere to the, uh, the labor legislation of the company, uh, country, the safety legislation. And, and I think South Africa having that, those laws around mining permit has vastly reduced the amount of potential artisanal activity which could take place in South Africa, particularly, for example, over the Kimberley dumps. Uh, Kimberley, as uh, your listeners may or may not know, was where, where diamonds were first mined in Kimberlites uh, well over 110 years ago. But the dumps actually sit right in the middle of Kimberley. So it's very easy for artisanals to work them. But this mining permit has allowed a level of organization uh, around diamond mining on those, which to a large extent has mitigated uh, the risk of any artisanal activity taking place. So the, I sense a, a sort of uh, sequencing here, and it suggests that it is important for the government to move and move very fast and be ahead of any influx in these areas, whether you have dumps or whether you have Kimberlites, because once the people get there, removing them, uh, the optics of it, even the legal aspects of it become complex. Was that the case in Kimberley? Did the government have the foresight to ring these dumps before there was any potential influx? I think it, there were many uh, dumps around the country, both gold, uh, and diamonds, and then many alluvial deposits, diamond alluvial deposits, which by their very nature uh, lend themselves to uh, private companies rather than public companies and, and smaller operations. And it was, uh, I'm pleased to say, a positive thing about South Africa. It was done well before uh, there was significant uh, artisanal activity on these dumps. Now, there was some, obviously but it wasn't such a big deal. And these mining permits allowed this level of organization uh, to actually take place. So in the South African government at this time were very strategic in how they approached this. And, and they rolled this out actually very, very quickly. And it has allowed, particularly in the Northern Cape, uh, where there are large numbers of kimberlite dumps and, and diamondiferous alluvial deposits, uh, for that to actually, you know, for mining to take place. But I, I would like to add something on top of this, uh, uh, Sheila, as well, which I think is very, very important. In, we did a bit of an exercise in, in Botswana Diamonds about the, the fiscal differences as well. If we just kind of uh, change gears slightly from licensing is to enable this to actually happen. If, for example, let's say, for example, the, the, the Botswana government decides they want to have their own version of the mining permit. What would be really important too as well is you've got to remove things like the royalty. The diamond royalty, for example, in, in Botswana is 10%, as you know. In South Africa, uh, the royalty is, is based on profitability. So if you're not making a profit, you actually don't pay a royalty. And that also allows your smaller scale operators uh, to actually get cracking with an area, particularly as we discussed a, a couple of moments ago, that many of these deposits are marginal. So when you're looking at a marginal deposit that has maybe 
a 10% profit to revenue ratio, you can ill afford to give that whole 10% uh, back to the government. So if you are retaining that 10%, it allows you to employ people. It allows you obviously to pay uh, all of your uh, employee and corporate taxes, buy services uh, and, and deal with supplies. So it does generate uh, uh, overall income to the, the fiscus, but not in an obvious level, uh, such as a royalty. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is part of regulating small scale is also not just giving rights of access to the deposit, but also having a taxation uh, and a physical policy framework that takes cognizance of the economics of the deposit, because otherwise the, the result is that you could destroy a value. Uh, and, and, and make those deposits uh, unattractive, even to small scale uh, miners. I, I wanted to, to go back to your reference to the DRC. I mean, it's estimated that the DRC has probably 2 million uh, artisanal uh, miners. Assuming that this figure is correct, I always wondered, why is it called small scale? Why is 2 million people small in number? This, there's nothing small about this, is there, James? No, no, nothing at all. I, I, I will use something from, from my experience, uh, Sheila, to kind of uh, uh, embellish my answer. That uh, at some stage, I, I went to a look at the, the, the Chibua Kimberlites, which are west of Mbuji Mine. And when I went to have a look at it, it was one of these fascinating mines I've been to, which I, I, I can't remember a parallel to it, where half the mine, half the kimberlite was being mined in an organized fashion using uh, excavators, load haul dump trucks, people with you know, PPE, a level of organization and through a processing plant. The other half of the kimberlite was being mined artisanally. And, and, and it, I, I wouldn't call this small scale mining at all because there was no organization around it. And there must have been at least from, from and this a long time ago now, maybe at least 10,000 people mining using picks and shovels and, and buckets and using their own water courses on the other half of the Kimberlite. And, and the middle of that Kimberlite uh, as to who had what was, was often a bit of a, a war zone. So. It's you can imagine that you have many families and, and, and many people working there because the diamond grade of the Kimberlite was actually so high. And then obviously there are people who come and buy the diamonds. Uh, otherwise, these people wouldn't actually make an income. So I can well believe your two million number. But the level of organization, as we discussed a moment ago, there is no organization there. Uh, it was. Uh, just people going to work where they find the opportunity uh, to, to make a living. And it's really as simple as that. Yes, it, it's funny you should say that because I always think myself that we ill-advisedly misconstrue the problem as being a mining problem, when in effect, it's a poverty problem. The sense I get is that a huge part of the environmental degradation or even the propensity towards illicit trade and other ills typically associated with artisanal mining is just poverty. 
that people are subject to levels of poverty and they find themselves in these seemingly opportunistic uh, situations and they do what they do, which is uh, to try and survive. So I was just wondering, shouldn't we rethink the model then, James, of how we bring orderliness to artisanal mining? Shouldn't we go to the root cause of this human influx rather than try and uh, after the fact, regulate activities that have already now been ongoing for decades and have attracted 2 million people? Yes, Sheila, I, I, I think we should. There, there isn't another element uh, in addition to poverty, and it may be significant, it may be insignificant. And I remember having the discussions around this on, on this very uh, DRC project with people who worked on the mine and with artisanals themselves. And that goes back to uh, almost the old gambling instinct, people call it, of your old diggers uh, in, in South Africa over a over hundred years ago. It's yes, it's the thrill of finding a diamond and making an instant fortune. And even today, even in the, uh, the Kimberley region of South Africa, there are people who operate under this way. They buy themselves a lovely house. They buy themselves cars, etc. They start to sell them as they carry on digging. They eventually go bankrupt. They find a diamond and, and the cycle all starts over again. And, and many, even when there would be an opportunity, particularly in this part of the world I'm referring to in the DRC, where you could probably have three crops in one year because the, the soil is, is so good and the, uh, the environmental conditions are so much where you could make very good money from organized agriculture, people prefer to actually have the thrill of going to look for diamonds. But then that goes back to your point around organization. If there was an organized farming environment, for example, in that part of the world, or an organized small-scale mining environment, or medium-sized uh, my, uh, scale mining environment, that would uh, provide jobs, and, and hopefully those jobs would be reasonably well paid and uh, are not kind of marginal jobs where there would still be the, uh, the inclination for people to go and go back to artisanal mining. So having that level of organization around not just mining, uh, but around other activities such as agriculture uh, and things such as that would, I think, to a large degree, uh, reduce the amount of artisanal activity. Mm, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, because I think you are right. People uh, assume that if, if you go and you dig and you find the diamond, then instantaneously you will get rich. You and I know, of course, that's not entirely so. Not every diamond is significantly valuable. Uh, and so people could dig away for a long time and indeed find stones, but the value of the stones may never transform their, their, their lives. So there's a, there's a, a level of uh, gambling. There's a level of uh, high risk, high stake. Uh, and there's a level, if you wish, of, uh, you know, a cheap thrill involved also and, and some kind of false exoticism uh, around the, the, the search for diamonds. So as a, a person who has been in the diamond industry for decades, what then do you say to critics of the industry who say, look at those poor people digging away their lives and their health for years? Diamonds are bad. What do you say to people who say that? 
Sheila, is, is, is a very, very good, uh, very good question. And, and my answer uh, to that would be, it doesn't have to be that way. If you have a enabled legislative framework, such as what uh, you know, we have in, in Botswana, where there is a, a strong partnership between uh, the government and the beers in Debswan in terms of developing the mines. There are other operators such as uh, Lucara Diamonds and ourselves uh, active in Botswana, where diamonds are very clearly used for good. Uh, it is used uh, to generate taxes, to generate infrastructure uh, for the people, to improve the, the well-being of the people. I'm saying that actually, if there was a level of organization at the, the governmental level, enabling legislation to allow small scale and large scale mining to actively contribute to the economy, like many other commodities, then you would need not have this artisanal mining, which to many uh, darken uh, the whole diamond industry itself. So it's not mm. something that uh, uh, we get in, we don't get involved with diamond, artisanal diamond mining at all. Uh, as you said in the introduction, we're listed on the London and, and Botswana stock exchanges and, and we're fully compliant with all of their rules. So if people invest in a company such as ours or many other companies in the diamond business, they could be assured uh, that those diamonds would have good chain of custody. There would be good social, environmental and and legal compliance around how we work and the income from those diamonds uh, for from the state's perspective would be used to grow the country itself. So my I would often put that back, Sheila, to summarize, saying it's actually up to the governments themselves to produce enabling legislation like they have with small scale mining uh, permits in, in South Africa to allow that uh, change from artisanals to small scale to generate diamonds for good, for want of a better word, in a country. Hmm. So James, do we have artisanal diamond miners in Botswana? No, we don't, not to my knowledge. They may be very, very small. Uh, and, and one could, uh, it's a fascinating question. And I, and I think maybe uh, there are a couple of causative uh, reasons behind it. Uh, the first one is that the level of compliance in Botswana uh, is very good. We, we know that Botswana is the, the number one mining destination in, in Africa and, and certainly one of the, the top mining destinations in the world because of uh, the, the low political risk. And that includes compliance along with a whole load of other very important factors too as well. But second to geologically too as well. You know, you don't have high-grade kimberlite sitting on the surface. Uh, which are not owned by people. You know, the high-grade kimberlites are either buried deep uh, beneath the Kalahari sand or are owned by uh, Debswana at this point in time. And then secondly, you don't have the extensive alluvial deposits, which are typically home uh, to the artisanals when you look at countries such as uh, the DRC, uh, Angola, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, that Botswana doesn't have those uh, uh, those. Uh, those large scale alluvial deposits, chiefly because of geological reasons. So I think there are two reasons there, Sheila, why Botswana doesn't have uh, artisanal activity, any at all, in fact, if, if I know correctly. 
Yeah, somebody once gave me a, a figure of 50,000. I just left them off. I didn't get involved because I figured, gosh, if there were uh, 50,000 artisanal miners uh, in Botswana, I wouldn't know. But that's by the by, because I was trying to uh, see if there's a cause and effect. Because, of course, Botswana doesn't have the uh, mining permit equivalent of South Africa. So assuming that we are right, that's that's one of the important factors in creating orderliness. Botswana doesn't do well there. Botswana, uh, like most African countries, even though the, cap the per capita income is fairly high, you still have levels of poverty. So those would be on face value, some of the possible ingredients. I think the answer is the geological profile. No artisanal miner is going to dig 40 meters before they intersect a, a kimberlite, the way that uh, large scale mining has to do in the Depswana mines. Uh, in the first instance, a few things there, Sheila. I think the first thing that needs to uh, take place, and we've discussed this, and I've got two or three other uh, thoughts as well. The first thing does require enabling legislation. That's uh, something which is uh, allows uh, small scale mining to develop. Because if that was the case, then what would happen is that your artisanals would gradually start to reduce because the level there would be more potential economic gain uh, by having a small-scale mining permit. I think the second thing is something that we haven't touched on, but I think is very, very important too, uh, and that is around skills development, uh, because that's another one of the fundamental differences between artisanals and, and small-scale mining. With small-scale mining, you've got people who understand, maybe on a fairly basic level, the geology, the mining, uh, the processing and, and things such as that, uh, whereas artisanals don't. So you need to have this level of uh, skills development. And in, in my view, one of uh, the two or three ways of actually arriving at that, uh, as you said in your introduction, I, I, I graduated from the Royal School of Mines in London. And what that had is exactly what it said, School of Mines. You had metallurgy, mining, engineering, and, and geology, exploration geology, mining geology, et cetera, all under one roof. So your graduates, which it produced, were, I was a geology graduate, but I did majors in, in mining, mining economics, metallurgy, and those kind of things. So I had a fair idea about the other disciplines. Would you believe you don't necessarily have the same school of mines sitting anywhere in Africa? Uh, and, and, and I think there would be a good place to have a school of mines where you had integration between those disciplines. The second thing would be to have a, a functioning chamber or minerals council or something like that, which not only looks after the large scale players, which they do across the whole of, uh, of Africa, uh, but they also look after the, the smaller scale and artisanal players. And in fact, that in, and I don't, I, I don't want to use South Africa again, but I will in this particular case, they have a junior miners section uh, of the Minerals Council, which used to be called a Chamber of Mines. And that allows uh, for the small scale miner who can't afford to contribute because you know, he's got no money to contribute to this level of organization, being part of something where skills can be shared, people can be shared, information and, and knowledge can be shared. So in summary, it's around enabling legislation, and then secondly, around 
skills development, all the way from uh, degrees through to diplomas, uh, through to having organizational bodies which allow for information sharing. That's wonderful. On that note, uh, James, it was wonderful speaking with you and thank you very much for sharing your insights and, and appreciate your coming uh, to chat to us on the Sheila Kam Extracted podcast. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Sheila, for having me. And, and I, I listen to your podcast on a regular basis and I, I think it airs some very, very important discussions uh, which the mining industry need to be well aware of.